Okay, today is July the 29th, 2010. I'll remind everybody, tomorrow night is Friday night at the movies. The African Queen, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. Popcorn, cookies, coffee. Well, uh, Sunny D. So keep that in mind. Oh, and a Foghorn Leghorn Classic for tomorrow night. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You that You have revealed the great and mighty things that inspire us and give us confidence and hope. We thank You for the Holy Spirit who is our mentor and our teacher that enables us to understand these spiritual things that are so phenomenal. So we pray that we will utilize this time wisely, that we'll stay plugged in, concentrating, so that Your Word will have a mighty work in our life. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Before we get started, just one quick word. Um, I've been observing young people lately. I'm not talking about necessarily at our young people's um, class, which seems to be really flourishing. Uh, the young people are showing up and they're learning and they're asking a lot of questions. But outside this church, I have noticed that the young people seem to be pretty much oblivious to things of God. I, for instance, I would go sit down. Uh, I, one day this week, I went to Quiznos around lunchtime. <clears throat> I sat in the chair over by myself, and I was just observing the people. And there was a lot of young people from Blinn in there. And I started noticing them. that They were taking up several different tables. And I was there before any of them, so I saw every group of them sit down and start eating, and not one of them said a prayer, bowed their head, or did anything before they started eating, which is not a good sign. Um, you can't expect too much from the young people these days if they don't have doctrine. Uh, there's this uh, show called The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And it's kind of a bizarre thing anyway. They have one, if it's The Bachelorette, it's a girl, and they have 25 or 26 guys, and she's got to uh, weed them all out and pick which one she's going to marry. At least they still have marrying in there, at least to a degree. And if it's the guy, it's just the opposite. It's 26 women, and he uh, dates them and uh, gets rid of certain ones and so forth. And the last portion of that, when it's down to about four different people, I think it's four or five, whatever it might be, uh, then they have the option that they stay in Tahiti and all these wonderful places, and they can spend the night together if they want to. And I don't know if anybody's turned it down. Maybe they have. I don't, I don't, I've never seen it enough to know. <clears throat> but that got my attention. I thought, <clears throat> hmm, these, these are young people, unmarried, and yet it was accepted that most of them, when they're asked, do you want to spend the night, they say yes. Now they're going to have something called the bachelor pad. And the bachelor pad is going to be where it's just nothing but young people in their college age for the most part, and <clears throat> they're just all living there together, and you just choose which one you want to live with. And the whole thing is you live with this one a night or two or whatever, and then it, I don't know, I haven't seen it, but it just seems like it continues to get more immoral and more degenerate all the time, and the TV producers ought to be ashamed of themselves, and yet the people put up with it. So... Uh, that's something that we need to be aware of, and we need to be very thankful that there are parents in this church that are rearing their children in the admonition of the Lord, teaching them right from wrong, teaching them what morality is, teaching them what a marriage is all about, and all of the damage that uh, just being abandoned in their morals, what that can cause. So we, we are thankful of these parents and they should be saluted and encouraged. Okay, turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Actually, we just completed chapter 4. And I gave you a flavor of why it is important that as we go through these these notes, and we're doing it methodically, we're doing it slowly, we're looking at every uh, aspect of these scriptures. And the reason is because there's always false doctrines that are lurking about. There's always those who would contend with those who have orthodox biblical uh, doctrine in their soul. And one of them happens to do with the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 deal with... Jesus Christ returning and taking his bride, which we will be the bride of Christ, back to heaven with him, and it gives us the details there. But there are those that think that Jesus Christ is not going to return to take his bride until at least the midpoint of the tribulation. Sometimes that's called the pre-wrath idea or the mid-tribulational rapture. Now, this is... This can be devastating to one's thinking because if you think that you have to go at least through half of the tribulation before Jesus Christ is going to return, then you can't be anxiously anticipating that he could come at any moment because there are certain things that have to happen before then. And it really eschews a lot of ideas. when It it somewhat damages dispensationalism because what it does is it has to merge the church age dispensation with the last seven years of the Jewish dispensation, and that would be a mess. It would be a disaster, and yet uh, they try to reconcile this. And so I had, uh, I think we'll start here. This is the, um, there, whoop, there it is. Um, this is something we went over briefly uh, last time towards the end. I'm going to start here, go over it briefly, and then go into something uh, that has to do with the a rebuttal of this pre-wrath idea. Uh, the pre-wrath rapture is based on the idea that the church-age believers will go through at least the first half of the last seven years of Daniel's 70th week, which is called by most the tribulation. In order to embrace this pre-wrath rapture, one must do the following. The first thing is either deny or at least weaken the dispensational position. I just explained that to you. If you have two dispensations that come together, instead of having a clear line of demarcation, this one ends and then this one begins, if they merge together, there would be a tremendous amount of confusion, and yet this is something that they must do. The second one is deny the strict distinctions between Israel and the church. Um, Charles Ryrie is the is by some known by some as the father of dispensationalism. Uh, I've hear, heard him speak on uh, different occasions at different conferences. I've spoken to him on occasion, just in amongst uh, other people in a group. And according to him, probably the most distinguishing factor with regards to dispensationalism is keeping the church and Israel separate. They are distinct. And when, that, when you erase that, you start eroding the foundation of dispensationalism. And when you don't have dispensationalism, you simply cannot understand the Bible. Number three, <clears throat> the tribulation that divides the period into two separate unrelated halves so that the church can go through the first half even though it has no part in the last half. Well, it is true that the dispensation of the uh, the 70th week of Daniel, which is the last portion of the Jewish dispensation, uh, can be seen as a first half and last half, but it still has continuity. Um, The midpoint of the tribulation is going to be known as the abomination of desolation, which is given in Daniel chapter 9, where the Antichrist is going to go into the temple and he is going to demand that he be worshipped. And this, when the, there's going to be a false image, a false prophet, all these things are going to take place. And from that point on, uh, he is going to start having ascendancy. Before that time, there's going to be things that are happening. For instance, there's going to be a one-world religion. But that one-world religion can only, have, can only last about halfway through that seven-year period because the last half, that Satan himself 
is going to demand that the entire world worship him. So that means the ecumenical one world religion is going to have to be uh, destroyed and, and the Antichrist is going to see to it. So what this is saying is that uh, the two halves are unrelated. And I say, no, they're related. It's still part of uh, the, the whole seven years of the last portion of Daniel's 70th week. There's going to be certain things that are going to take place, uh, but it has a continuity to it. Number four, they must deny the doctrine of the eminence for all the signs of the first half of the week applies to the church according to them. That is the, <clears throat> the first half of the tribulation, uh, they believe, is uh, the, the, the church age believers will still be on earth then. And if that's the case, it means that there is no eminence because there, there are certain things that have to happen. The, the first five seals, for instance, would have to already be opened. Uh, the Antichrist would have to be revealed. Uh, the uh, restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit would have to be gone. Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are essentially the first four seals of Revelation uh, chapter uh, 6, all these things have to happen. And if that's the case, <coughs> excuse me, the eminence is gone. We understand that Christ can come back at any time because we're not waiting on any signs. We're waiting on Christ. That has a, a big, that's a big factor in our, in our lives as believers because we should be anticipating Jesus Christ's return because the Bible tells us to. If all these other things have to happen, then that great anticipation would be severely lacking because, after all, we don't have to worry about Christ coming until these other things happen. Number five is they deny the concept of the church as a mystery. The mystery doctrines of the church age. The, un, the, the Old Testament believers knew nothing of the church. Didn't have a clue. You can go in the Old Testament and you're not going to find anything about the church because they didn't know about it. And we went over last time in the Gospels, there is a, a little intimation, a little prophecy about when the church age was going to uh, uh, begin and something about the Holy Spirit was going to be sent in order for the disciples not to think that uh, the Lord has abandoned them. But this isn't church age doctrine being taught. Uh, and if it was, then the mystery would be, there wouldn't be any mystery by the time Pentecost rolls around and Paul started teaching these uh, church age doctrines in detail. It was a mystery up to that point, but if they were already being taught then there would be no mystery. Then we have the sixth point, which is they must depend to a certain extent on the spiritualizing method of interpretation. You know what that is. It's, it's, it's when you're backed against the wall and you don't have any other way, place to go. You say, well, it, that's not literal. It's just uh, metaphorical or it's a, it's a simile. It's, it's just symbolic. But we take things in the Bible to be literal unless there is very clear evidence that it is symbolic. Now, those things I got from Things to Come, J. Dwight Pentecost, uh, that's his book, is Things to Come, page 179 through 180. And then we ended, I just gave a list of some of the people that I'm aware of that I respect as far as Bible communicators. And all these people are on the same page with regards to the rapture occurring before the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation. And I have people who have come up and said, well, what about Charles Ryrie? Or what about uh, other people that I've left off? And I just sat down and just made a quick list. I know there's many more than this, but this is, this is a pretty impressive list of all these, these theologians and pastors and professors and uh, <clears throat> communicators of the word, they all agree that the rapture is going to occur before the tribulation even begins. Now, <clears throat> with that said, I'm going to give you a little, I guess you could say, ammunition. Or It's one thing to talk about this, but I'm sure since I said this is an issue, there are certainly people who <clears throat> would assert that we're going to have to go through the rapture. I don't know about you, but if I thought I had, I mean, excuse me, through the tribulation, if I thought I had to go through the tribulation, that would really be a downer, it would be a bummer. 
not only do I not want to go through it because the Bible says it's the worst time there ever will be or there ever was. And it's when you start studying it and you see how horrible it's going to be, nobody in their right mind would say, yeah, let's go through it. That's going to be a ball. Uh, it's going to be anything but a ball. So, But it also um, goes against so many of the scriptures that I have. So this is uh, an attempt for me from on my side to show you at least <clears throat> a little bit of the rationale that makes sense with regards to the pre-tribulational view, which I hope that you hold. It's the one that I hold. And I'm going to give you at least one, what I think is very solid evidence that we are not going to go through the tribulation. So follow with me here. Now, by the way, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. You may be wanting to make a few notes as we go here. Revelation chapter 1. The apocalypse. And you can go, you can, uh, these notes hadn't been handed out. I hope y'all can see those from there. Can you see that, Michael? Okay. This is just something that I put down as I was looking through Revelation that I think is substantial with regards to substantiating our view of a pre-trib rapture. After covering the church on earth in Revelation chapter 3, we begin chapter 4. But now, when you first start, the first you might make a few notes in your Bibles because these are pretty handy to remember. The first three chapters of Revelation is dealing with the church age, church age believers on earth. <clears throat> the first three chapters. So that's, you might make a little note of that somehow. And then if you go to Revelation chapter 4, the, verse, uh, the first verse, notice this. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So, in my little paragraph here, after these things, in other words, chapter 1 through 3 is dealing with church age, Believers on earth. Now chapter 4, it changes and it says, After these things, then John is called up to heaven to see what is going to be happening there. You understand so far? Instantly he views God on his throne. Look at verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one uh, sitting on it, sitting on the throne, and it gives his appearance and so forth. And then by the time you get to verse 4, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, there's nothing to indicate that the subject has changed from the church in chapter 3, remember chapter 3, 1 through 3 was the church on earth. Now we're in chapter 4, and he's dealing with uh, something he's seeing in heaven. But there's nothing in the text that I can see that would say that the subject matter with regards to the church has been changed. So there's nothing to indicate that subject has changed from the church from chapter 3 to something else in chapter 4 other than the location. One would normally conclude that the church is still being covered, but now described as it would be in heaven because we just finished chapter 3. This was the seven churches. And now he's called up into heaven and he's describing a throne. And, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to be too dogmatic about this, but as I was reading Revelation, and when I went from chapter 3, which all those chapters were talking about the church, we go to chapter 4 and he starts describing heaven. 
it wouldn't be out of the ordinary to think, okay, he's going to be describing something, and it's quite possible, if not probable, that the church is still going to have something to do with it because he just finished describing things about the church. But he definitely now is in heaven. Now, we see a description that God and his throne uh, is given, and the 24 elders are described. Now, who are these 24 elders? Very important question. Now, listen very carefully to this next thing I'm going to say. If they are church-age believers who have already received their rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, before the, the tribulation begins and the first seal is open, then no church-age believer would go through even one day of the tribulation. Do you understand what's at stake here? Because you don't even get into the first seal uh, being opened until you get to, let's see, where's the first seal? Is it in chapter 5? Um, yeah, in chapter 5. So, even before the first seal is opened, you have the 24 elders described. And here's my contention, and I'm going to back it up with what I'm going to be showing you. My contention is that these 24 elders, beyond a doubt, are church-age believers who have already gone to the judgment seat of Christ, who has already received their rewards and decorations. And like I said, if that is true, then it means this any, anything about church-age believers being on earth still before their resurrection during the tribulation is moot. It can't happen if they're already in heaven in their resurrected bodies. You understand? Okay, let's look at some evidence here. Here's some of their descriptions. In Revelation 4, 4, it says the 24 elders are seated on thrones. Being seated on thrones is associated with being royalty and with rulership. You'll notice that when it talks about angels, the angels are standing. I, we have one that says, I am... Uh, Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. But we have these elders sitting, and they're not sitting on a bench. They're sitting on thrones. This would connotate that they are have something to do with rulership. Sitting on thrones is one of the rewards available to church-age believers who overcome. To the church, and the church only, is co-enthronement promised. Here's one of the scriptures. Revelation 3.21 says, He who overcomes... I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, what I'm doing is I'm just taking the description that the Bible is giving in order to show that these 24 elders are church-age believers who have already received their resurrection bodies. And, of course, he who overcomes in chapter 3, what did I say? Chapter 3 is dealing with church-age believers. Jesus is already seated at the right hand of God the Father. And Paul said that we are already seated with him positionally in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. So when John was transported to heaven to see the future, he saw church-age believers there after the rapture, but before the end-time judgments even began. Here's the scripture here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. If you want to turn to it, you're welcome to do it. If you want to make any um, notations there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You heard that before? Verse 6. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, it's saying we're already seated there positionally. So there are going to be at least 24 that are going to be sitting there experientially. 
And it's going to be after the rapture, after they have received their resurrection bodies, this is going to be fulfilled in an experiential sense. Right now, it's just positional. Am I going too fast? Okay, next point. The number of elders being 24 is significant. Look again in verse 4. And around the throne were 24, uh, 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders. So the number 24 is important because in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 1 through 19, we see that there, that, uh, there were 24. 24 was the number of courses that the Levitical priesthood was divided. Now, what this means is if you go to... Uh, First Chronicles chapter 24, there were so many priests, the hundreds, maybe even been thousands of Levitical priests. And they all, every time they had to uh, set policy or uh, have something, uh, have a meeting or something, they couldn't have all hundreds and hundreds or thousands of them come. That wouldn't even be practical. So David had uh, 24 of these representatives, they're called elders, that represented the rest of the priesthood. You understand? And what my contention is, are the 24 elders that is mentioned here are doing essentially the same thing. Uh, and, and I'll explain more about that in just a second. Of all groups of the redeemed, only the church is a priesthood. There is no other people, there's no other people in any other dispensation anywhere that is referred to as priest. And we have it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, we are not, uh, we don't go and have to use a priest because we are a priest and only the church age believers are. So what I'm doing is making that comparison even more valid. You have 24 of these elders that were representatives of all the priests in First Chronicles 24. Now in heaven you have 24 elders which I am saying is representative of all the church-age believers that are there. And after all, we're, we're priests also. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 says, And he made us to be a kingdom priest to, to his God and Father, to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. He made us to be not only, uh, he made us to be essentially king priests. There are church-age believers that are going to be fulfilling both those roles, kings and priests. This is Reign of the Servant Kings. I don't know if you've ever seen this book by Joseph Dillow, but we are going there. Some of us are going to be servant kings. We're going to be serving the king of kings, but we're going to be a king in our own right as far as a reward is going to be. Eldership in the New Testament is a representative office. The word there, for, you find it in Acts 15 to Acts 20, 17. The word there is presbuteros. Presbuteros is a word that carries authority with it and certainly is a representative office. Now, here's where I explain it that I said I would get to this. The 24 elders in heaven appear to be representing all the resurrected church age believers, just as the 24 elders that King David appointed representing the entire Levitical priesthood found in 1 Chronicles 24. There were hundreds if not thousands of priests, and they all could not come together at the same time in the temple. So the 24 elders represented all the priests. Likewise, the millions of resurrected church-age believers cannot all be seated around the throne. So 24 of their number are chosen to be elders who represent all the resurrected church-age believers. Now, I think all of this that I'm telling you here is more than coincidental. Are you all ready to press on? Then they have this third point, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. Now, the testimony... Uh, go ahead and turn to that in your Bible. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. The testimony, in other words, in, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, we get a testimony. We have a report of what they're going to be saying. And so the testimony of the enthroned elders marks them as representing the church. 
The testimony contained in these scriptures can be made only by the church. Only the church is royalty and priests. Okay. Now, look up here. I want you to read what's here and not what's in your Bible. First of all, okay? Y'all all looking up here. This is Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. In the King James Version, and I know most of you are not reading the King James, that's why I want you to look up here and read it. This is what the 24 elders are going to say. And when he had taken the book, this is Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul was all upset because no one could be found to break the seals of the great scroll. And finally, uh, we find that there is one that is able to break the, the, the seals, and that one is a capital O. We're talking about Jesus Christ himself is the one that's going to be breaking the seals. And so when he had taken the book, God, uh, Jesus Christ goes and gets the scroll out of the God the Father, and he's going to start uh, eventually breaking the seals. But this is what is being described here. The four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. I, I don't want to go into the four beasts right now because I'm zeroing in just on the twenty-four elders right now. So when this took place, is a big, big event, they fall down before the Lamb, Jesus Christ, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. You got that? Now look at your Bible. And look at verse 9 and read with me. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And thou wast slain and hast redeemed... Who? What does, your, what does your version say? What does it say? Okay. For thou hast slain and hast redeemed, you say, men. You'll notice that that's in italics, right? Okay. And when you get to, we'll keep reading, to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made, what's your next word there? Them. Look what, what we, look what we have up here. Us. Unto our God, kings and priests, that, what do you have there? They. Look what we have. We. Now that makes a big difference as to who the 24 elders are. Because if this is 24 elders and saying that they're talking about Jesus Christ who has redeemed us by the blood and every tongue and nation and has made us unto our God be kings and priests and we shall reign on earth. It's not the 24 elders talking about somebody else. They're talking to them about themselves, right? Okay. Now this is a report that I have. And it's... It, the, the name of the report is the rapture and the revelation, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, which we just read. Establishing the pre-70th week rapture. You understand what he's saying here? Pre-70th week rapture. That means the rapture is going to take place before the 70th week of Daniel, which most of the time people just call the tribulation. Now, what he has this, this is by uh, Dr. John Nimala. I, I, I've met uh, Dr. Nimla on a couple of occasions, talked with him a few times, and he is the professor of New Testament literature and exegesis, Schaefer Theological Seminary, and uh, this was written March 13, 2006. Now, what he's doing in this, and it is uh, 11 pages long. Scholarly is not the word to use for this. It is so scholarly, if I read this to you, you would all be asleep by page 5. By the time we got to page 11, the paint would be peeling right off the walls. Because it is, uh, it's very difficult to, uh, in, to understand, but I'm going to give you just a, a paraphrase shot at what he's substantiating. Uh, essentially, what he's saying is that 
the New American Standard Version Bible that, you, that we all have is uh, based on the Nissel Island Manuscript. And you have the Texas Receptus, which is um, another manuscript. And then you have the majority text. And um, it is the Texas Receptus that uh, is the translation that we saw in the King James, where it says, uh, we, we, uh, us, us, and we. And what he's doing through here, he's got charts, he's got um, these, uh, this is a Hodges a Farstad reading, attempts as uh, guilt by association, the uh, Texas Receptus, Receptus versus the majority text. Um, over here we have a response to Messenger and Osborne, and then we have Playing Devil's Advocate for the Nussel Island Reading. Um, exegetical Implications of Us in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And then you have the conclusion that uh, all of this uh, is, this is the appendix transcripts of the Alexandris Codex A for Revelation 4, 8b through 6, 7a. There's two columns of it and it's all in Greek. Okay? So... I'm just giving you a rundown of what this is. I, what, the, what the consensus is, is that the King James Version has it right. So when you might want to, uh, in your Bibles, let's look at this again now. So where you say uh, in verse 9, Purchase for God with thy blood, where you have men, what I've done in my Bible, is cross it out and put us. Because the Nestle Island, according to Dr. Nimala, didn't get it right, but the Texas Receptus did, and the majority text has most of it right. And then when you get from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and in verse 10, and thou hast made us. And who's speaking here? Look at verse 4. It's the 24 elders has made us a kingdom of priests to our God and has, I don't know what you have there for the, the last part, uh, is, and they, but the, the Texas Receptus has, and we. So if you want to cross that out, if you want to make a notation that the New American Standard Version is based on the Nestle Island manuscript. And so when you recognize it, and if anybody ever wants to challenge you on that, ask me for this report. And if this doesn't do it, I don't know what will. Eleven pages of things that are... I had to strain. My head hurt by the time I was through with this. But I did get the consensus. And as you saw, they, in men, they didn't even have, they have it in, in uh, italics. So, here we are. We're looking again at why I'm saying this is church-age believers who have already been resurrected in heaven. And these are representatives. These are elders of all of the church-age believers. And this again, we know that God has already destined us uh, to be, uh, we are already priests. We are royal priests because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that we are in Christ. Furthermore, uh, we are going to be servant kings. I hope everybody in this room is going to be a servant king. There's certainly a potential that we will reign subordinate to Christ who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes. Well, all this is saying is that the church uh, came from uh, where we have here every uh, kindred tongue and uh, every blot out every where is it? Um, it's not in this one. Oh, this is the King James. Okay, New American uh, tribe. There, there's nothing really wrong with tribe there because if you think about tribe and you think about the tribes of of uh, Israel, well, certainly there are Jews that are church age believers, 
And there are church-age believers from every tribe of Israel. So we don't, there's really no problem with tribe there. I mean, it's not, it, it doesn't uh, change a thing. The description here is just saying that church-age believers came from every part, every place in the, on earth. Every ethnic group, and it's describing church-age believers. Are you all ready to continue? Okay. Four prophets saw the throne of God and recorded what they saw. We have it in Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10, Daniel chapter 7, and John in Revelation 4. These are the four prophets that God gave the ability to see the throne. Only John gave details about the 24 elders because the Old Testament prophets knew nothing about the church. John would be the only one that would know something about the church. And so he saw the throne and he enters the 24 elders. I don't know why I went to four to six. I just can't count, I guess. Number six. Sometimes when you do something on Microsoft Word, the numbers go all berserko. So anyway, uh, the next point is the elders are clothed in white garments. Church-age believers who overcome are promised to be clothed in what? White garments. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. The church will be dressed in fine white garments after the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ according to Revelation chapter 19, verse 8 and 14. We will already have our white garments then. I remember when I was uh, under Colonel R.B. theme, he used to call this the uniform of glory. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really dog, all that dogmatic about this, but I think that that white garment is going to be translucent. And I think the more authority you have, the more you have advanced as far as rewards and decorations and so forth, I think it's going to shine. And the, the brighter you are, the more authority you have. I, I can't unequivocally document that, but I think that has something to do with it. I think that Adam and Eve, before they sinned, had some kind of translucent light essence or something around them because after they sinned, it said, and they were naked, and they knew they were naked. Well, they were always naked. Why would it say they're naked? I think they lost something there that was has to do with that. I, I'm not making a big deal over that, but uh, definitely being dressed in white is one of the rewards that is listed for who? Church-age believers. Number seven, they're wearing golden crowns, and these crowns are, crowns are victor wreaths called the Stephanos. This is the same Greek word that is used for the crowns that, are going to be, that we are going to be rewarded with. So they have golden crowns on their heads, and these are the same type of crowns that mature believers will receive at the judgment seat of Christ. According to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, James 1:12, 1 Peter 5:4, Revelation 2:10, Revelation 3:11, all talk about Stephanos crowns. 2 Timothy 4:8, James 1:12. 1 Peter 5.4, Revelation 2.10, and Revelation 3.11. Revelation 4.10 tells us that these 24 elders worship God by casting their crowns, their crowns before Him. It should be noted that no one in heaven will receive a crown until the Apostle Paul receives his. In other words... You never hear of angels wearing crowns. Only the church age believers are, are, it's prophesied that some are going to wear Stephanos crowns. And certainly, there's not going to be any believer in heaven that's going to get a crown before Paul. Here's the substantiation right here. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me, who's talking there? Paul. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Judgment seat of Christ. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
So you don't have any believers run around with Stephanos crowns before the judgment seat of Christ, and before the judgment seat of Christ, there has to be the rapture. And here we have these 24 elders being described before the tribulation even begins. The first seal hadn't even been opened yet. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, referring to the rapture, and my reward, including crowns, that's my part, is with me to render every man to every man according to what he has done. That is the reward that is listed for church-age believers. When the celestial disturbances... Let's see, do I want to get into this? Uh, let's see. Uh, I guess I will. I have just a few minutes left. I'm done with the 24 elders now, by the way. And for someone to say that these are angels, they can't be angels because the Bible never says that the angels were redeemed. And it says that these 24 elders were redeemed. And you don't have angels stand, uh, uh, sitting before the throne. You only have that happening to church-age believers. At least that's the only ones that the Bible says that we're already seated with, with uh, God in the heavenlies. And you have the, 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 the white. Anyway, I think that any person who is halfway open and reasonable would have to say that this is church-age believers already resurrected, already wearing crowns, sitting on thrones. And according to Revelation, this is before even the first seal is opened. To me, that's pretty much of an airtight case. Now, some, some may allege that this is just symbolic. But what does that mean? Does that mean there's not going to be any 24 elders? Certainly the 24 elders are representative of someone. So I think any reasonable person would, after this exhaustive description, would have to conclude these are church-age believers in resurrection bodies before the tribulation even begins. Yes. We don't know who the 24 are going to be. I have not a clue. The, the significance, I think, about the number is it parallels what we have in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. You have a, a leadership there. People, there were 24 elders that represented all the priesthood. On, and now you have 24 elders. But now these, this is another situation. Now we're in heaven and we're talking about church-age believers who are representing another priesthood, church-age believers. We're the only ones designated as, as, the, as the, the priesthood. It's not, we don't have the Levitical priesthood anymore. That's what I would say is significant about that number. Now, to me, it could even if that did not match, it does, but even if it didn't match, if there was 2,400 of them, it doesn't change of the rest of the description. They can only fit church-age believers. And anyone that would not say that, well, yes, I can see that you have a point. This looks like it's church-age believers have an axe to grind because if they know anything about what church-age believers are about and what they're destined for, they would have to say, yeah, it sure looks like it's church-age believers. And it doesn't matter how many. I think the number is significant in the sense that it parallels something already given in the Bible, a parallel with regards to the way something is being organized, the way it's going to be carried out. I need to take a break. <laughs> How about you? Okay. Now, there's something else that happens. By the time you get to Revelation 6, see, I don't know. I've never taught Revelation, and some of you probably are pretty blank with regards to what's going on in Revelation. But now you already know the first three chapters have to do with the church on earth. Chapter 4, you have what appears to be 24 elders, which are church-age believers who are in resurrection bodies uh, before the, the tribulation even begins. Now, officially, what's going to be the, the, the trigger point of the tribulation is when the Antichrist is going to make a contract with Israel. And it's for seven years. You find this in Daniel chapter 9. 
That is the starting point. And after you go to after it starts, then you can go to Revelation uh, at the end of chapter five, and you start getting into chapter six. Have, how many of you ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Probably just about all of you. Well, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are essentially the first four seals that are broken. And these seals, it's Jesus Christ who are, that is the one that's breaking these seals. And every time he breaks a seal, then a certain thing is going to take place. And so these seals, they call them sealed judgments. Some people don't like to say, well, the Bible doesn't say, call them sealed judgments. It just says seals. But when they're, they're broken, there's going to be judgments coming down. And so when these things, when these first seals are broken, the first one you have is uh, the Antichrist coming on a white horse. And what does that mean? What does that does that ring a bell with you? Who else is coming on a white horse? Jesus Christ. Who's the great counterfeiter? Satan. And so his emissary, you have the Antichrist coming on a white horse. If you want to see it, you can turn to um, Revelation chapter five. Let's see. Uh, I'm sorry, look at chapter 6. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a loud voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, this can't be anyone other than the Antichrist. He is trying to counterfeit Christ coming on a white horse. You notice that he's wearing a crown. You also will notice that he has a bow, uh, but he's not carrying any arrows. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, this appears that this is when he actually first gets started, and he is amassing his political base. This is where it appears that he is being revealed. One of the things that has to happen is the Antichrist has to be revealed by the time that the day of the Lord begins. And I'm, we'll get that next time. When we're, we're, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 starts talking about the day of the Lord, and we're going to get into it up to our eyeballs. But this suffices to say here that the Antichrist is going to set up and solidify a base politically so he will be world-renowned. So by the time he's coming on the white horse, he already has to be revealed. He has to be a mover and shaker on the world scene. He's going to be a political figure that everybody's going to recognize. In fact, after the rapture occurs, he's going to be one that is going to try to calm everyone down because when the rapture occurs, all hell is going to break loose for the most part. There's going to be millions of people all over the earth that's going to disappear. There are going to be a couple of believers in an airplane flying a passenger jet, and they're both gone. What's going to happen to the jet? What's going to happen to an 18-wheeler going down 60 miles an hour on a freeway? The next thing you know, he's gone. I mean, there's going to be great calamity, and the world is going to be in complete uproar. They're not going to know what happened. They're not going to have a clue what's going on. And this is when they need a world leader that can come up as charismatic and that they can trust in, and he's going to give them the answers. And he's going to rise like a rising star very quickly. And this is what it's describing here, that he's coming on a white horse. When Jesus Christ comes on a white horse in Revelation... Uh, chapter uh, 20, or chapter 19, what is he doing? He's delivering the Jews, isn't he? This is where second advent, he's going to come down. Israel is surrounded by all the armies. And when he comes on the white horse, he's going to be a deliverer. When you have the Antichrist here coming on the white horse, he's going to supposedly deliver the whole world. He's got the answers. I don't know what it's going to be. Aliens came down and... Uh, took them, and now I've got the antidote. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be. So this is what's going to happen. He's that, that's the first horse, and that's the... Uh, by the way, that's the white horse. And then you have the next one is the red horse, which is the war. There's going to be a war like you can't believe during that time. 
And you see, the first, when he came in the harsh, he says uh, that he had a, uh, was beheld on a white horse who said on, who had a bow. He has a bow, but he didn't have any arrows. So I think this is setting up his political place. And then you see the next one. There's war breaking out, the red horse. That's in chapter 3 and 4. By the time you get to verse 5, you have the, the third seal, which is the, the uh, third horseman of the apocalypse, which this time is famine. I mean, it's going to be unbelievable economic disaster. People are going to be starving to death all over the world. And by the time you get to the fourth seal, this is pestilence. This is the ashen-colored horse that is, uh, is death. It's going to be all types of plagues. And uh, we have diseases now that we don't know uh, how to cure, but it's going to be uh, much worse. It says... Um, that a four, yeah, look at verse 7. This is when the fourth seal breaks. It says, And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth creature, uh, living creature, saying, Come. And, it, and it's describing uh, this. And, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name of death and Hades, and was following with him. The authority was given to them, over one-fourth of the earth. One, you think this isn't going to be bad? And this hasn't even gotten to the worst part yet. One-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So by the time this fourth horseman is loosed, the fourth uh, we have here, the fourth seal, we have one-fourth of the earth, one-fourth of the population is gone. Now, can you imagine... And we haven't even got to the worst part of the tribulation yet. And so I was going to go into more about... Uh, this was setting me up for what I have here about when we get to the uh, sixth seal. We've got one more seal after this, which is the fifth. I was going to the sixth seal, and I was going to make a point there how uh, people get off, but I'm completely out of time, so... And I don't know how far I will even go into this because all I'm doing is trying to show you more than anything what's at stake when we're looking at these things in First Thessalonians. And I'm really emphasizing a point. I'm not doing it just in order to be dramatic. I'm doing it in order for you to understand this is a very key principle in being able to stand firm for the faith and rebut false doctrines. And this is one that's rising. This is one that people are buying into. And you need to be able to rebut this. And if the 24 elders are indeed church-age believers who have already been resurrected, then anything about a church-age believer going into tribulation is moot. Because we will already be in heaven and resurrection bodies before it even begins. And I don't know about you, but I thank the Lord for it. I don't want to be any part of that tribulational period. It is for unbelievers and Israel, and I'm not an unbeliever and I'm not a Jew. I am royal family because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I thank our Lord that He is going to come and He's going to get me and He's going to get you and the rest of His bride and take us to heaven while all this is going on because it's not for us anyway. So I said my piece. I really haven't. I'm not through yet. <laughs> I just ran out of time. <laughs> So uh, let's close. Father, we're so thankful for your word that is always harmonized. It's just like reading one continuous thought throughout. And yet it's so easy for us to forget these things as if they're not important. There's a reward for those who are anxiously anticipating your return. And with good reason. Those who understand who you are and what's ahead could hardly do anything less. So we're so thankful for your promises. We're thankful that you have revealed these things to us. And we will continue to give you praise and glory throughout all eternity for what you have done for us and what you will continue to do for us. And we pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.